Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. This is our fifth week in studying this powerful first book of the Bible. And we have seen before our eyes in these chapters God displayed in the way he created the universe, beautiful planet Earth, Adam and Eve giving them life and amazing bodies and each other and the joy of knowing God. We've seen God displayed before our very eyes in these chapters as perfectly good, flawlessly wise, and infinitely powerful, beautiful God displayed through creation. And God told Adam and Eve, you can continue in my perfect goodness and kindness forever if you will just not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which meant don't think you can decide for yourself what is good and evil. I created you. Trust me. I know what's good and evil. Trust me. Follow me. Obey me. Very simple. But in Genesis chapter 3, something horrifying happened. And that is Adam and Eve became proud. And they decided they wanted to be like God. They wanted to call the shots. They wanted to decide how they're going to live their lives. And so they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They sinned against God. They decided for themselves what would be right and wrong rebelled against God in that way, and the result was sin started to cover the earth, and God's curse, his judgment, covered the earth. Tragic events in Genesis chapter 3. Now, some of you have raised a question about this, a really good question. Questions are good. And the question is, why did God create a world in which Adam and Eve could sin? He could have created any kind of world he wanted to. Why did he create a world in which there could be sin? Do you feel the weight of that question? It's an important question. And as I pondered that this week, I found a clue which I think points us in the right direction for answering that question. And remember, remember the three promises in Genesis chapter 3. Such an important part. Turn there, open it up, see that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. These promises show that God was not surprised by sin, but that all along he had a plan to deal with sin, which shows that sin wasn't an accident, wasn't something that God was shocked by. It's something God had purposefully allowed. It was part of his plan. Here's the three promises. First one, God promises to put enmity between the serpent and Eve. At that point, Eve had sinned. She was in league with the serpent. She was in agreement with the serpent. She was fully, passionately pursuing sin. And unless something changed, she would never depart from that path. But God said, I'm going to put enmity between the serpent and Eve. And because of what Jesus would do on the cross, God brought his power upon Eve and changed her heart, subdued her rebellious will. She said, what am I doing? Oh, God, forgive me. And because of Jesus, God forgave her, restored her to himself. That was the first promise, a promise dealing with sin. The second promise, God says, I'm going to put enmity between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. Who are the serpent's offspring? All of us before Christ saved us. 
because we all had turned our backs on God. We've all eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've all rebelled against God. We became enslaved to sin. We were pursuing sin as hard as we could. And unless God intervened, nothing would ever change that. And the book of Revelation says that God is saving a vast multitude of people that no one can count from every nation and tongue and tribe because of what Jesus would do. And that's what God is promising to do in that second promise. And again, it's a promise about sin. God had a plan for sin. Third promise. One of Eve's offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. Destroy Satan and sin and Satan's hold on the world. And that is a prophecy of Jesus, who when he died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin, received the punishment for sin upon himself, when Jesus did that, he broke Satan's power, broke sin's power, broke guilt's power, crushed the serpent's head, which is how we can be saved and forgiven. And so see, these three promises in Genesis chapter 3.15 show that all along, God had a plan for sin. And what the rest of the Bible teaches us is that God purposefully allowed there to be sin in the world because that would most fully display the love and the mercy and the goodness and the compassion of God. He allowed sin in the world because it would give a blazing display of God's love and mercy. And that's good news for us. Because our highest joy is seeing, beholding, worshiping God in his mercy and grace and goodness. And so the fact that God allowed sin in the world, which gives an even greater display of the goodness and mercy and glory of God, means that that will give us even more joy and God even more glory forever. Here's the illustration I thought of. God's like an artist okay, with, a, with a big canvas right here. Okay, an artist who, who paints. And God wants to prepare for his people the most stunning display of his glory and mercy possible. And so he starts with a backdrop, a, a dark backdrop of sin. We've seen that in Genesis. We're going to see that even more powerfully in Genesis chapter 6. So this backdrop of sin, so that we can see how horrible sin is and how just God is in punishing sin, how we completely deserve only punishment for our sin. No excuse, no appeal, no rationalizations. We deserve to be damned because of our sin. We see that in this backdrop of look at our sin, the, the ugliness of it, and look at God's judgment. That's the backdrop. But the picture doesn't stop there. Then God paints right in the very center with the backdrop as a contrast, this beautiful picture of him coming to earth in the person of Jesus. Suffering on the cross, the punishment that we deserve. God suffering, God experiencing the cross. Jesus, fully God, fully man, suffering on the cross to be punished in our place for our sin so that then God could bring his power upon us and and change this heart and subdue this rebellious will and set this person free from their bondage to the evil one a vast multitude that no one can count. And so we have in the center of this picture this display of God's glory and mercy that is all the brighter and sharper and clearer because it's painted on the backdrop of, of our sin and God's justice. 
That's why God allowed sin in the world. Because the more clear the revelation of his love and mercy, the more joy the redeemed will have and the more glory he will receive. That's God's purpose. So sin did not take God by surprise. In the mystery of his sovereignty, he purposefully allowed it to take place. Now, the reason I mention this is because in today's chapter, it's going to look like sin is, or God's creation is out of control. Sin is just rampant, covering the earth. It's like sin is winning. It's like the wheels have come off. Disaster has struck. But that would be a huge mistake. No disaster. I mean, disaster in a sense, as you'll see, that God is still in complete control. His purposes are being accomplished. So let's look at Genesis chapter 6 and start with this question. What has happened to God's creation? Start with verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. This is not an easy passage to understand. Some think that the sons of God are wicked angels who came down to earth, had sexual relations with women who they found attractive. But the problem with that is, remember, Jesus taught clearly that angels don't have sexual relations. Remember? So I don't think that works here. And I think the, the best explanation is what Many other commentators say, and that is the sons of God are men like Abel and Seth and Enoch, remember, whom, whom God had saved by his power. God had put enmity between the serpent and them, changed their hearts through what Jesus would do, forgave their sins. So because God changed their hearts, they repented, they believed. It's, it's men like Abel and Seth and Enoch who God had saved, but here, tragically, they sin. And they disobey God, who wanted them to marry godly women, obedient women, women whose hearts God had also changed. But these men just said, she's hot. She's awesome. Forget that stuff. I just want to, I've got her. She's mine. And, and that, that was happening. And so we see sin spreading here. That's verses 1 and 2. Sin is spreading. Look at how God responds in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he's flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So God sees sin spreading over the earth, and he says that his spirit, he knows that his spirit will not have to abide with sinful man forever because man is flesh, which means he's going to die. God knows that. But even so, God says, to limit the amount of time that men can be sinful on earth, he's going to shorten their lifespans to 120 years. What's going on here? God, their flesh, they're going to die, but I'm going to shorten their lifespans even more so they have less time to sin. Sin is spreading. I'm going to curtail it, limit their lifespans to 120 years. And that's what we see happening in, in the next chapters in Genesis. The time spans of men and women get shorter and shorter and shorter. Remember, it's been like five, six, seven hundred years in previous chapters. Shorter, 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 down to 120 years. Keep reading in verse 4. The Nephilim, there's a lot of tough verses in this chapter, okay? So 
The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, most commentators think that the Nephilim is another description of the ungodly men like Cain and Lamech. We saw in chapter 4, remember that? Cain and Lamech, who were ungodly, enslaved to sin, didn't want God, not interested in God. And one literal translation of Nephilim is fallen ones, having experienced the fall. So this would mean that the result of godly men disobeying God, marrying unbelieving women, is that even more ungodly people were born. That's what I think is is being said in verse 4. So Genesis 6, these first verses, sin is spreading. Sin is spreading. Sin is covering the earth. And then look at verse 5. It's a shocking text. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, underline these three words, only evil continually. Such a, I would encourage you to memorize that verse. So powerful to ponder. When God looks down at the earth, he sees our wickedness is great. And it is so great that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts was only evil continually. Now, if it's only evil continually, then that means it was always evil, right? Now, this should raise a question in your mind. And that is, okay, but, I mean, didn't we do some things through uh, that were like generous? Didn't we do anything that was kind? And we did. No doubt about it. But, but think about this. None of those generous or kind things that we did before we were saved were done out of love for God. I mean, just think honestly about it. None of them were done out of love for God, desire to please him, glorify him. We did generous or kind things, but they were done so we'd feel better about ourselves or so we would have people like us, be impressed with us, or so we wouldn't feel guilty, maybe. So we did some generous and kind things, and those brought maybe benefit to other people, but they weren't good because we were doing them with our backs firmly turned against God. We were not doing them because, God, I love you. I want to glorify you by being generous, by being kind. That was not in our hearts. Can you remember that? That's why Moses tells us here, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so now, when God looks down the world, he sees this world that it is full of continual wickedness. So, how does God respond Next question. That's what's happening in the world. That's what's happening to God's creation. How does God respond? Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, this could make us draw some wrong conclusions. It could make us think, you know, God didn't really know what he was getting into when he created the world. We say in America, like, you know, God bit off more than he could chew. 
Anybody else talk that way? Know that, that phrase? Like God really did not understand the ramifications. He really should have thought about this ahead of time, maybe. You could think that, right? You could from this verse. But that would be a mistake because of what we see in the rest of the scriptures. And one passage I want you to look at is 1 Samuel 15. God does feel regret and grief here, absolutely. But that's not the whole story. And I want to try to give you more of the whole story. So in 1 Samuel 15, the setting is that King Saul, whom God had chosen to be the king of Israel, had fallen into sin. God chose Saul to be the king, and Saul fell into sin. And so look at what we read. I've got the two verses up here. 1 Samuel 15, 11. God says, I regret. Exact same Hebrew word as back in Genesis 6. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. See, just same language as Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. But then in verse 29, there it is. Look at what Samuel says. He says, and also the glory of Israel. Now that's a word for God, a name for God. God is the glory of Israel. So and also the glory of Israel, God will not lie or have regret. Same Hebrew word. So God will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So God feels regret, verse 11, and God does not feel regret, verse 29. Okay, now, what that shows is that there is a sense in which God does feel regret, and another sense in which God does not feel regret. Let me try to explain and see if this helps. When does God feel regret about sin being in the world? John Piper uses this illustration, which I have found so helpful. He says, God has two different camera lenses that he looks at the world with. One camera lens is like a narrow lens, like a telephoto lens, a narrow lens, and God feels regret when he looks at sin through this narrow lens where sin is all that he sees. All he sees is, look at the ugliness of that. Look at the, the wickedness of that. How that dishonors my glory and profanes my holy name. And that causes God to regret that there's sin and to be sorrowful over, their, over sin, to feel grief over sin, and to rise up with holy, righteous wrath against sin. That's how God genuinely feels when he looks at sin through the, the narrow lens. And that's verse 11, 1 Samuel 15. But there's another lens that God looks at sin through, and it's, it's a wide-angle lens where he sees not just sin in its ugliness and hatefulness and wickedness, but he sees what sin is going to result in. He sees what sin will, will produce in God's plan, in God's wisdom. And so he sees not just the sin, but with the wide-angle lens, he sees that our sin is going to display his love and his mercy, bring him glory forever, bring us joy as we see his love and mercy displayed forever. And so when God sees not just sin itself, but the, the big picture with this is the outcome of sin, glory to God, his mercy displayed, his love magnified, then God doesn't feel regret when he sees the big picture. He feels joy and delight in what he is going to do in the process. Does that help any? Narrow lens, regret, grief over sin, judgment, 
That's a genuine reality in God's heart. But at the same time, God can see that exact same event with a wide-angle lens where he is completely at peace. His sovereign purpose is happening. He even feels delight and joy because this is going to be beautiful. It's going to be good for the redeemed, and it's going to bring glory to my name. And God's heart is complex. Both of those can be happening at the exact same time. So don't think, now let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. Don't think that in Genesis 6, 6, it shows that God has lost control. God is in complete control, and yet still our sin is wicked. Our sin is hateful to him. We have turned our backs on the most glorious reality being in the universe. We've profaned the infinite worth of God's glory, and it deserves only white-hot wrath forever, and God feels that, and that's what he's expressing in verse 6. Then look at what God says in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I regret that I have made them. So God looks down from heaven, sees the world full of complete wickedness. Every intent of the thoughts of their hearts is only evil continually. And in his righteous judgment, he decrees, I am going to destroy man and animals and creeping things and birds. It's absolutely just. And the angels said, yes, bring it. Look at them. But then God does something absolutely shocking. So, but do you see the backdrop of, of sin here on the painting? Do you see how dark that is? See how hateful it is? Now watch what he paints. How else does God respond? And in verses 8 through 21, we see mercy. We see some wrath, but we see mercy. Especially in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That does not mean sinless, by the way. Noah was not sinless, but it means that the trend of his life was Godward. God had changed his heart. His trend was Godward. So he was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So here we meet Noah. We've all heard about Noah, right? Here we're heading into the flood narrative. So who was Noah? Now, now think about this. See if this makes sense to you. What we saw in verse 5, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What we saw in verse 5 would make us think that Noah was described in verse 5. You'd think that, right? Every intent of Noah's heart was only evil continually, which would mean he had no interest in God, no love for God, no desire for God, and that left to himself, that would never change. From the flow of thought, from verse 1 down to verse 5, everybody's described in verse 5, including Noah. In other words, Noah was just like all, the, all of us have been. But here in verse 8, we read something astonishing. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that, that does not mean that God looked down from heaven and saw, wait, there's, there's one righteous man here who, who's walking with God, who's, who's blameless in that sense. 
And the reason is because his righteousness and blameless in walking with God is in verse 9, which comes after verse 8. The most natural way to read this is that God is that Noah found favor with God, and then God changed his heart, so he became what was described in verse 9. Righteous, blameless, and walking with God. And that might shock you, but I would just appeal to you, look at the flow of thought from verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Noah was part of verses 1 through 6. He was part of verse 5. Judgment. Noah deserved judgment. And then what do we read? Noah found favor with God. If, if verses 8 and 9 had been switched, Noah was righteous, walked with God blameless, and Noah found favor in God's sight, we would be drawing a different conclusion. But notice the order in which these... This might be a new thought for you. I just appeal to you. Just let, let the text shape your interpretation and thinking. So what does this mean? It means that God looked down upon Noah. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just like you have been and just like I have been. And at great cost to God, to himself, because of what Jesus would do suffering on the cross, God set his favor upon Noah. God set his affection upon Noah. Every intention of the thoughts of Noah's heart was only evil continually. God sets his compassion and his love upon Noah. And because of what Jesus would do, God changed Noah's heart. He was dead in sin. God made him alive through what Jesus Christ would do. Just like Lydia, his heart was closed to God. God opened his heart to respond. Acts 16, 14, and many other verses. So God set his favor, his grace, his love upon wicked Noah and changed his heart. And the result was that Noah was righteous. Noah was walking with God. Noah was blameless, not sinless, but his life had been changed. In other words, just like we read back in chapter 3, God had put enmity between the serpent and Noah, just like he put enmity between the serpent and Eve and the serpent and Adam and the serpent and Enoch and the serpent and Seth and the serpent and, and Abel and the whole bunch of people at the end of chapter 4. God gave him a heart of flesh, took out his heart of stone, his heart of flesh turned from sin, trusted God's mercy, loved God, and as a result, because of what Jesus would do, Noah was completely forgiven for all of his sins. He was loved by God, favored by God. God had affection for him. He was restored into relationship with God. He was righteous. Now keep reading in verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt. Notice the repetition there. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Here's mercy. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. God's just response to sin. 
We don't deserve mercy. God's just response. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. Free mercy, undeserved mercy. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did all this. He did all that God commanded him. Now don't, don't miss what an amazing display of mercy and grace. This is so powerful and humbling and exhilarating that this is who our God is. Don't, don't miss this. Now think about this question. Besides Noah and maybe his family, how many righteous people are there in the world at this point? None. Right? Because if there are any other righteous people, they'd be on the ark. Right? So let me ask that again. Besides Noah and maybe his family, how many righteous people were on the earth at this time? None. None. So let that sink in. None. Everyone was sinning. All of us were sinning. Do you feel that? Look at what has happened to creation because of our sin and wickedness. And we can't blame them. We've all been in on it too, right? We've all been in exactly the same place. And as I said earlier, this passage gives us every reason to conclude that Noah and his family were included in verse 5, where every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So at the point of verse 7, it sounds like every single human being is choosing to rebel against God. And so can you see why God would choose to bring the flood and destroy all of mankind? And can you see how sinful we are? Can you see what an incredible picture of our sinfulness? A gloriously good God creating this beautiful earth, giving us everything we needed, and we've all rebelled against him. And that's why God would choose to bring the flood and destroy all of mankind. But now see this picture. It's not all that God does. At great cost to himself. Heartbreaking cost. Sending his own son to the cross. Having his own son be punished on the cross. God coming to earth in the person of Jesus. This is Gethsemane weeping kind of love. This is nail-receiving love. This is cross-suffering love. This is the kind of love that the God of the universe has for his rebellious creatures, for whom every intent of the thoughts of our heart was only evil continually at great cost to himself. God sent Jesus to the cross. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God brought his power. He, he set his affection upon Noah. This wayward, rebellious, sin-committing sin man brought his affection on Noah, set his favor upon Noah, set his grace and mercy upon Noah, and changed Noah's heart 
subdued Noah's rebellious will. He said, Noah, I'm making my covenant with you. And, and Noah's heart was changing. He said, what am I doing? Oh, God, you are glorious. What was, I was blind. Thank you. I turned from my sin to put my trust in you. And because of what Jesus did, Noah was forgiven, restored to God, and God provided the ark for him and his family so they can be saved from the flood and repopulate the earth. Do you see what the artist is doing? Do you see the horrifying backdrop of sin, which, is, which we are to blame for? No one made us sin. We've all freely chosen to sin. And that's us. That's the backdrop of our sin. Do you see the backdrop of our sin? And then do you see how that backdrop displays the love the compassion, the mercy of God in saving at great cost a vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And when before the throne, we sang earlier, I stand in him complete, what'll we say? Jesus died. Jesus died my soul to save. Jesus died. Left to myself, I would be Worthy of judgment only and facing judgment forever. Jesus died, my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. That'll be the, the song of the redeemed forever. Salvation to the Lamb who sits upon the throne and to God. Not to us, but to your name give glory. Now, what does this mean for us? Let me give you two takeaways. First, see God's regret and grief and sadness over your sin. Oh, this struck me this week. I've never seen or felt this quite as deeply. We've seen that our sin brings regret, sorrow, sadness, grief to God's heart. That's not all that God's feeling, but that's a very real part of what God is feeling. And so just let this sink in. Here's, here's kind of how I meditated upon this this week. There is a real God who's really existing, who's sovereign over everything, created everything, created me, created you. There's a real God existing. And when I sin, the God of the universe feels in his heart grief and sorrow about me. And when you sin, the God of the universe at that moment is feeling in his heart grief and sorrow about you and your sin. Grace Church, I'm praying that this truth will change how we see our sin and motivate us to fight against our sin. Because we see that our sin causes the God of the universe to feel grief and sorrow, sadness. I mean, think about it. Let's say that you're driving tomorrow and you call the driver in front of you an idiot. It's so easy to do. But see, that, that pride and that sense of superiority and that wickedness, right that moment, the God of the universe is feeling grief and sorrow. Aren't you seeing who I am? Aren't you seeing who you are? Pray for this person, for salvation and better driving. But anyway... But see, at that point, we are not seeing God. God's, we turn our backs on God when we do that. Or when your eyes linger on a, a picture on the internet that you shouldn't be looking at. 
that disobedience to God, that objectifying of a woman for your own lusts, dishonoring what God has done in creation, turning your back on God, at that moment, the God of the universe is feeling grief about you and sorrow about you. Or, so easy to do also when we're impatient with our kids. I never struggled with patience. I probably did, but I don't remember it until we had kids. But when we're impatient about our kids, we're not trusting God's sovereignty. We're not trusting his timing. We think it's all up to us. Our hearts are empty because we haven't let God fill them. And God looks down upon us and there's grief and there's sorrow. So Grace Church, what would happen if we let this change how we view our sin? So we're not whitewashing sin anymore. We're not rationalizing our sin anymore. We're not justifying our sin anymore. We're broken by our sin. Remember, Paul says, don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. Don't grieve God. Stop grieving God. How is God feeling about you right now in his heart? As he looks back on this last hour or two or last day or week, are you filling his heart with pleasure, joy, delight? Because our obedience does that. Or is God's heart filled with grief and regret and sorrow. Let this change how you view your sin and let this motivate you to fight sin. Grace Church, let's fight our sin this week. And when we sin, let it break us and bring us right back to the cross. Do not stop. Do not hesitate. Right to the cross, just as we are. Here I am, down on my knees again, surrendering all. Okay? That's the first takeaway. Second takeaway, see the glorious mercy of God in saving sinners. The whole world was full of sin in Genesis chapter 6. And at the cost of coming to earth and suffering on the cross and receiving just wrath for our sin, Jesus came. God sent his own son to die, to suffer for us. And because of that, God put his favor upon Noah. God changed Noah's heart. Noah repented of his sin in response, put his trust in God's mercy through Christ, and God forgave him, and Noah was restored to God. See God's mercy, the glorious mercy of God in saving sinners. And so, so here's the deal. If you right now are trusting Jesus Christ, then you are just like Noah and have experienced exactly what Noah did. You deserved hell forever. At great cost to himself, God set his favor upon you. God set his affection upon you. Not because you deserved it. None of us did. But because God, to display his glory, said, I'm, I'm going to love a rebel. I'm going I'm to love a hell-deserving rebel like Steve Fuller to display the glory of, his, of my grace. And that's what he did for me, and that's what he's done for you. So see the mercy of God displayed in how he saves sinners and bow and worship this glorious God. Now, if you're not trusting Jesus Christ today, oh, there's good news in this passage for you. Because look at how mercifully God saved Noah. You're no worse than Noah was. Just like Noah. And God saves Sinners just like Noah and me and, and you. And so here's my encouragement to you. 
Look to Jesus Christ right now. Look to his love displayed on the cross. Look at his mercy. Look at how glorious he is. Look at how beautiful he is, how majestic he is. Look at how you can be saved through him and turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. He will forgive you right now. He will change your heart right now. He will satisfy you in himself right now, and you'll be reconciled to God forever right now. Just turn to Jesus. I mean, why wouldn't you turn to look at his love? Look at his goodness. Look at the forgiveness. Nail-pierced hands. Death on the cross. Turn to Jesus and trust him. Look at him. He will save you. He will forgive you. So turn to Jesus. We're so glad you're here this morning if you're not yet trusting him. But, oh, we want you to trust him and to be forgiven. So here's what I want us to do. Let's have the worship team come up. I want us to take a minute or two and just to, to ponder these things and to pray. So just right where you are, just bow your head. Some of you this morning, God is, is putting his, his hand on your shoulder and he's saying, you need to see how I feel grief and sadness and regret when you sin. You need to see that more. He's saying it with love, but oh, he is saying this. So just ponder this right now. Think of the fact that when you've sinned this past week, the God of the universe has felt grief and sorrow and regret over you. And, and let it break your heart and bring you afresh to the cross right now. So just think about that and come to the cross and receive fresh assurance of forgiveness. Others of you, God wants you to see more clearly his mercy as revealed in the way he saves sinners. So look at his love in, in a costly way, putting his favor upon Noah, changing Noah's heart, putting enmity between the serpent and Noah. Look at the beauty of his costly, sacrificial love and mercy and bow down before him in your heart and, and worship him. Do that right now. And others of you, those of you who are not yet trusting Christ, please, right now, for your good, for God's glory, for your salvation, turn to Jesus. Trust him. Turn from your sin. Trust Jesus. He will change you. He will forgive you. He will restore you into relationship with himself. Do that now. So let's worship with the song.